0: This is episode 73 of Cinescope, and to love another person is to see the face of God. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Aaron White to talk about one of our favorite films, *Le Miserable*. Aaron, how are you doing tonight? I
1: am great, Chad, and I am so excited and thankful that you asked me to come on and talk about this movie.
0: Yeah, I don't remember exactly what the genesis of us Speaking about this particular movie were but it was just a week or two ago and we said yeah we 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 just have to do it It, it, it's something that has to happen and so we put it on the date actually i think it was more like a month ago so we we planned this a little bit ahead and uh it's definitely been something i've been looking forward to and dreading at the same time
1: (laughs) yeah there is some of that involved
0: for sure well, before we get into anything regarding the film itself, how about you reintroduce yourself, tell people who you are, what you do, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure.
1: Um, so I host a, a podcast as well called Feeling Film, and that is a podcast where we try to focus a little bit more on the emotional takeaways that we have from watching movies versus critiquing the technical elements as much. And I host that with my best friend Patrick. Um, it's a long-running show about... I don't know, year and a half going on our second year now, and it's, it's a pretty exciting thing. Really enjoying that. Um, we have been having a lot of fun getting to know other podcasters and just going through a ton of good movies. We kind of bounce back and forth between newer films and also older films as well. So we have a, a wide breadth of episodes for listeners to check out, and yeah, it'd be great to, to have some of your listeners uh, give us a... a a ping, too, if they were interested.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we've definitely talked about Feel and Film in the past. I've been on the show once or twice, and I'm always happy to champion your show because we have similar outlooks on movies, and we like to talk about our positive feelings that movies give us. And so Feel and Film, I've always sort of considered a, a sister show or a companion show or however you want to consider that, Cinescope as a companion or sister to you as well, um, where we're, we're both out there to promote movies and not to tear them down, which is in contrast to a lot of those popular podcasts out there. Absolutely. Uh, before we move on any further, I do want to draw attention to the sort of spin-off of Cinescope that launched this week. It's in the same feed. So you likely already saw this, but it is called Cinescope today. It's the one with the red album art and, uh, it's a spinoff where we're going to be talking about current release movies on a more regular basis. This show, uh, the Cinescope podcast, if you will, is more focused on films that are a year or older. has sort of always been my criteria, and it's because it's movies that we've seen before, and we know we like them, and so we know we're going to have positive things to say. We couldn't guarantee that with current release films, and so that's why it's just now us getting around to that, and it it's... Something that I've wanted to do for a little while. I wanted to do more podcasting, and this is it. So Seth and I will be uh, in every episode of Cinescope today, not necessarily on a weekly basis yet, uh, as often as we can, but our first episode was over the newest Jumanji movie, Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. We posted that earlier this week on Monday, and I'd love for you to go listen to that. Check it out. Tell us what you think. Tell us movies that are upcoming that you'd like for us to talk about, and uh, we'll certainly have certainly be having guests on for that show as well. So, Aaron, you you'd be, you'd be welcome on that one too.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm always up on new releases, you know that. Yes, and I'm I'm glad you did Jumanji <laughs> because then you got to start it with a positive movie right off the bat.
0: Right, of course. Pretty much, well, not everything in theaters right now, but all the recent releases have been on a, a pretty high note. You've got the post, you've got Paddington Two, which are both getting stellar reviews, and then you've got Phantom Thread coming up, and you've got Star Wars: Last Jedi, which has at least positive critic reception, and Jumanji is uh doing really well, also. The greatest, so,
1: the Greatest Showman.
0: Oh, the Greatest Showman, yeah. Uh, th- there's lots of good stuff out there. So we-, we just thought Jumanji was a good start as far as. Let's let's begin with something big, and we're looking to explore uh, other new releases, and there will certainly be ones that we won't enjoy as much along the way, and that's just the nature of seeing current release films. So, last thing, we got a new review over the last week from G-Tilt. Thank you. It was awesome. It lit up my Friday last week when I saw it pop up in the app store or in the podcast app, and so thank you. and. If anybody else hasn't left a review yet, if you would like to, that information will be available to you at the end of the show or in the show notes if you look now. And all that stuff aside, let's go ahead and jump into this discussion over Les Miserables, because I'm sure it's going to be a little long. (laughs) Well, it's a lengthy movie, that's for sure. It is. It is. It was released on December 25th of 2012. It was directed by Tom Hooper, who also directed Red Death, The Damned United, The King's Speech, and The Danish Girl. It was written by William Nicholson, adapted from the original musical by Elaine Bouble, Claude-Michel Schoenberg, and Herbert Kretzmer, and based on the original book Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Uh, music by Claude-Michel Schoenberg, who also composed the music for La Révolution Francois, Miss Saigon, Martin Guerra, the, Mar- the, or the Pirate Queen, and Marguerite. Now, I didn't practice any of that French ahead of time, so I hope it was at least close. I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the movie stars Hugh Jackman, Russell Crowe, Anne Hathaway, Amanda Seyfried, Eddie Redmayne, Aaron Tavite, Samantha Barks, Daniel Huddlestone, Colm Wilkinson, Helena Bonham Carter, Sacha Baron Cohen, and Isabel Allen. So, first experience, and that includes the musical itself. Uh, wh- what what do you remember about sort of your origins with this musical?
1: Well, I absolutely have a history with this film and this musical. And I'm really glad that you pointed out that this movie is based on the musical because that is a distinction from being based off of the book by Victor Hugo. Those are two different things. And The musical itself, the stage play was based off of the book and they don't play out exactly the same way I've read the book. And so that's an important thing to note if you're going to go into this. So for me, oh man, this, this goes back to high school. And I was in marching band. This is my first time of discovering Les Mis. I was playing the trumpet, and we decided that we were going to do, well, we didn't decide. Our band teacher decided that we were going to do a Les Mis halftime show. And I remember very distinctly One Day More, specifically, and the rousing kind of anthem that that is when you're marching around on the field. This led me to wanting to check out the entire soundtrack, which I did. And before I knew it, I was driving around in my 1988 Ford Tempo, thinking I was really cool, (laughs) blaring the Les Mis soundtrack and alternating it with Christian rap. That's how I rolled. Uh, (laughs) I fell so hard in love with this soundtrack. What I, I think shocked me was that it could be listened to straight through from mm-hmm. the first track to the last track it, it is it is a complete. it's the perfect soundtrack for me there's no little hiccups where I feel like I need to stop and skip it also tells the story so well that you could listen and I think all good musicals or great musicals do this where you can listen through the soundtrack and you don't even need to see the musical itself Patrick talks about this all the time My my best friend who I like to reference He's listened to Dear Evan Hansen multiple times, but he's never seen the actual stage play. Yet he knows the story just fine by listening to the songs. And for me, Les Mis is like that. Um, and the film does a lot of that because they're singing the lyrics, uh, which is basically seeing the dialogue. But for me, yeah, I just fell in love with it. I, that led me to reading the book after that. And then I saw the stage play late in my high school years, and I was hooked. After that, I've seen it a few more times. Even with the, the more and more times that I've gone to the theater, I have some season tickets to see Broadway here in Seattle every year. And I see at least five or six shows. I, Les Mis is still my favorite, and I'm getting to go see it again this summer. I'm super excited about that. And it's, it's always just really affected me emotionally and held a special place in my heart.
0: Uh, I had no experience with the musical prior to seeing the movie. Um, I mean, I knew the very beginning of I Dreamed a Dream, I guess, just because it's I Dreamed a Dream. Um, I was very active in theater in middle and high school. And so really the only thing I knew of Les Mis was that it was like this pinnacle of artistry, or at least that was sort of my perception at the time being around bigger theater nerds than me, Uh, because though I was involved, I wasn't necessarily a theater nerd. Uh, I, I knew Phantom of the Opera, basically. And I mean, that was my favorite for a very long time. But being around all these other people, it was like Lame Is was the, was the best of the best. But despite thinking that or having that perception, I never listened to it or sought it out or ever saw it. I still haven't seen the stage production. Um, and I didn't really have a lot of interest in that until the movie did come out. And the movie promotion started, it was gaining a lot of notoriety, it's got an all-star cast, and then they started uh, amping up the fact that it was a sung live on set musical, which really hadn't been done at this same scale before in other films. I think other films had maybe done it for a song or two, Uh, but this was the first time like the entire thing, a sung through musical, is sung through live on camera, not to a, a, a studio track. And so I was intrigued. I eventually saw it with some friends in Lubbock while I was, uh, there for school. And there were moments where i tried very hard to put on a brave face in the theater. And I did shed a few tears, uh, but I was, I was very affected by it. And I've since become distraught every time I've watched, uh, the last time was probably back in 2013 ish when I decided to do a sad movie marathon with, uh, Andrew and Melanie who've been on this show and it launched my interest in the stage production. I I downloaded the complete symphonic recording, which is the international cast recording available on iTunes. And I also, uh, or what's, what's cool about that recording specifically is that it also features the score that's featured in the musical. Um, and so it's a more complete musical experience outside of just the singing stuff, which is really cool. But then I also got the 10th anniversary cast recording, which is my favorite with Combe Wilkinson as Jean Valjean. Ooh, he is amazing. Yeah, it's my um, favorite too. Yeah. That, that in, there was like a six month period after I got into the musical where I was singing like Combe Wilkinson all the time, which was bad because I think at the time I was also preparing for like a voice recital that I was doing in college. And so I was like screwing my voice up by singing <laughs> along with Les Miserables in the car. Uh but that's another story. And so now, even though I haven't seen it on stage, I think this is my favorite musical because of how emotionally affecting it is. And it, it's so deeply ingrained in like my emotional psyche that when I popped in the Blu-ray today and it first got to the title screen... And they start singing, "Do you hear the people sing?" With nothing but a snare in the background, it was like I started getting ready to cry right then. It was like, "Come on, this isn't fair. We haven't even started the movie. I can't be having these emotions yet because I'm not going to make it." Uh, No, I I I loved watching it, but it, it, it does emotionally destroy me in the best of ways.
1: Yeah, it absolutely does, and it does the same thing to me. And you know, now watching it and what triggered the podcast you were referring to earlier. I decided to watch this over the holidays, and over Christmas. And I was mentioning it to you, and so we started talking about it. And I think this came out—I don't remember the, the right year, but it's, it's about five years. It's maybe the fifth anniversary.
0: Yeah, just past when five.
1: It, when it came out over Christmas, and I still remember seeing it then. And like you, I have that same visceral, unconscious or uh, involuntary reaction to the film when I started up. I think. My first tweet when I was trying to, to watch it this most recent time was, well, we've, we've started the movie and we're about two minutes in to look down and I'm marching around my apartment. Singing. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's, that's how quickly it happens for me. And so I think there's kind of two things when it comes to movies. You can watch a movie and, you know, you can evaluate it. You can always be thinking about its quality and its acting and, and its technical aspects and how the cinematography is and things like that. And then there's just straight up no, no, bull, no, no concerns about it. You are, you are feeling the movie. And for me, I feel like that's what happens when I watch this is I have a moving experience every single time. And there's things that I'm critical of in the film for sure, but I just, I don't even care. I don't. I I just don't want to talk about them. I don't want to think about them. They are out of my mind as quickly as they come in, and I can't be objective about it because it, like you said, it's so powerful um, on your soul. It just gets in there, and I, I really hope you get a chance to see the stage play at some point. And it, it's different. I mean, it's this is the movie, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not quite the same, but it is equal. I mean, it's still the same story, and it's still got the same affecting pieces to it
0: yeah i I think it's coming to Dallas in the near future so I might be get a chance to see it uh we'll see I hope but uh I, I just came up with the thought why don't I look at my original thoughts of the film because I have a website that I used to post film reviews on and I gave this movie five of five stars i I can't be objective about it either um, I haven't even tried to be objective and point out flaws i I, I you you mentioned their flaws, and I'm sure there are some, but I I don't think about it because I watch this movie, and especially as a Christian, it just affects me on that one on one relationship with God level that I I sort of strive to have, based on characters in this movie, based on Valjean and his redemption and the the passion with which he pursues loving others and making a difference with his life. I I really attach onto that and. That's really my focus the whole time. I, I I'm, Like I said, I'm sure there are mistakes, but neither of us can be objective about that. And That's fine because we wouldn't talk about them on this show anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so it works out well. Um, but let's go ahead and talk about story a little bit. I actually don't have a whole lot on this section because I think I'm saving most of it for character discussion, but I am interested to hear story, cinematography, what kind of stuff along those lines do you have to say?
1: Well, I'll apologize up front and say I've got a lot of notes. Uh, I, you know, I don't know some of this stuff might kind of be blending uh, story and characters together. And if I if I get off track, just reel me in and say, oh. "Well, wait." But um, for me, I think the first thing that stands out is that on the surface, this is a movie or a story about the French Revolution. That's what you think. That's kind of what everybody thinks when they don't know Les Mis when they haven't experienced it. They say, "Oh, that's about that French Revolution," but in reality, it's not so much about the French Revolution. It's about kindness and cruelty, and it's got this these romantic plots all the way throughout that are not just romance in terms of love and male female marital type love. There, there's a romance of sorts between. Valjean and Javert that is is equally as captivating to me and there's multiple versions of this that takes that take place and so I think those aspects of the film the fact that it does you mentioned it that word I think we're going to say it a whole lot of times throughout this the show is redemption this movie is about redemption it's about a lot of things but redemption is kind of the main the, the biggest arc if you take it from very beginning to the absolute very ending scene It's about redemption, and the other thing that really stands out to me within that is that I feel like it's kind of special how all of the deaths in this film—we are talking spoilers, right? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Okay. All of the deaths in this film, people seem to die with who they want or how they want of their own volition, except for the antagonist, Javert. He does alone, which is really sad. By throwing himself into the river sign, which is interesting because there's a line in a La La Land song Audition (laughs) where they say, and tumbled into the sign. And I wondered if that was a reference to Les Mis. And I actually tweeted Pasek and Paul, the lyricists for that song. And they said, I said, Is this a reference to Les Mis, or were you guys just, is this just a massive coincidence? And they responded to me on Twitter and said, The world may never know. So, I don't know. That's not, uh, (laughs) it's not, uh, either way, they're not giving us the answer, but I I love that they did comment back. Anywho, I digress. My point is, uh, with the death scenes, Fontaine dies with Valjean, so she dies with someone who is showing her compassion. Eponine dies with Marius, the way that she wants to die, the person she wants to be with, Valjean dies with Cassette and Marius with him, his daughter. So I feel like that's a, a very neat, important thing that happens in this film as well.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I I don't know how to add on to that. Um, oh, I'll, I'll, you want to just continue on? Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And then there's an interesting... Um, piece that like if we're going to talk about scenes, right? Mm-hmm. Favorite scenes in this film. This is hard because there's so many moving pieces. I'm glad that we're not on feeling film right now where we have to pick a connecting point. That's that <laughs> one that one moment where we connect the most with the movie because I don't know that I would be able to do that with this film. There's so many that I would feel it would be like picking children a favorite, you know, a favorite. So I don't enjoy this moment, but when the story changes to um, briefly to Gavroche's viewpoint, and this is the little boy in the resistance who ends up dying. His little his little miniature arc in the in the story really kind of slays me, <laughs> because he ultimately is the one that first calls out Javert's presence uh, as a spy, which leads to Valjean showing mercy to Javert and totally just screwing up his head forever. At that point, but Gavroche then ends up after the deaths of the rest of the the Leami, which is the, the resistance. Javert arrives and he sees that Gavroche has died, and this is the little boy who is trying to collect ammo and stuff in front of the barricades and ends up getting shot and It's just a terrible, terrible scene. Well, the fact that Javert comes and sees him, he's clearly disturbed by the casualties. I love this beat where he puts his metal on Gavroche. It's this little nod of recognizing the young boy's courage. And I feel like it's just the first time that we've really seen any kind of pity or sadness come out of Javert. Um, so that that's a story beat that I really kind of focus in on and a lot of times it doesn't get as much attention that that character in that arc he's not like he's not one of the main characters gavroche is not but Mm -hmm. everybody in this story is important and teaches us a lesson i guess if you will and so that's my example of that
0: yeah and that scene in particular says a lot about javert's Mm -hmm. character and i think it says something about his growth uh because that's not long before he sings his Uh, soliloquy and kills himself. Uh, So I'll have more to say about that scene specifically when we get there. Uh, But just relating to story, cinematography kind of stuff, man, the set design in this movie, the, the beauty of it cannot be overstated. From the very opening at the shipyard with Look Down and the end of Valjean's soliloquy overlooking the cliffside as we go into the opening titles and just... Set after set after set, even the barricade is just, it's its breathtaking how they were able to take these places that were really designed to be seen on a stage, since this is based off the stage musical, and blow them up. Which, which goes into my next point, which is that there's lots of long takes and close-ups, as well as the live performances themselves, which really make this have in my view, a stage production feel with all the benefits of a big budget Hollywood film. And that's where you get the set design and the, the extravagant costumes and all the extras that they're able to have because they're not limited to a stage. It's really cool that they're able to uh, merge the two worlds and really make this a big budget stage production in ways that real stage productions can't really do.
1: Man, I love that you mentioned that, because I would have if you hadn't. <laughs> the fact that, and this one, Oscars in costume and production design. I'm sorry, it was nominated for Oscars in costume and production design, and it won for makeup and hairstyling, all of which are completely earned, in my opinion, too. The fact that that barricade... It's it's a it is a single location. We are not moving throughout the town following characters with tracking shots. Because you couldn't do that on a stage, right? You mm-hmm. would only be able to have the one setting. And so much like that, that's what we have. We have them in the in the rooms in, of the house, you know, in one one place at one time for a single song or a couple of different songs, which are progressing the plot along. And so I, I too really like that aspect of it. And I love that. I mean, they become just so much more epic than they even can be on stage. Like, there's no way that the docks look, looked on stage like they can look in this this uh, film. And I know that it was. I think there's a lot of it was filmed in Bath, England, but some of these shots of the aerial aerial shots of the docks specifically, they just give this this epicness to it. You mm-hmm. see how big it is and that ship how gigantic that is that thing that they're pulling the the with regards to the music and the singing and the the choice to record live in particular the only song that was not recorded live i believe is look down and that's the opening track and the reason was because there's so much ambient noise from the water mm-hmm. that they couldn't they what you wouldn't have actually gotten to hear the people singing the song as well it would have really affected it but what i think is that by choosing to have them sing live, it captures this spontaneity of characters, and it's it's really raw emotionally. Like it is absolutely raw emotionally. The you're gonna have some drawbacks with that. Occasionally, you're gonna have people who can't go up and down in in a range or choose not to. Whatever Russell Crowe is doing, I don't know. <laughs> Somebody he he stays in a very monotone you know, place the whole film, which is an interesting nugget, by the way, is that Russell Crowe is in a band. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. No earthly idea. So he has somewhat of a musical background even. But it just Yeah, gosh. I love that choice so much. And it was a make or break one. You know what I mean? Like it could have sunk this movie completely if that didn't work. But I think that everyone on this set was so bought in to this idea that you can tell it, it turned out as this, this passion project from all of them.
0: And it gives these actors a real opportunity to showcase their talents that they really, when you're on a stage, you get to showcase your talents as well, but people don't, don't see the subtlety of your emotions. In fact, on stage, a lot of times you have to overplay things so that people in the back of the auditorium can see you and understand what you're doing a little bit better. So like Samantha Barks, who I believe actually played Eponine in the West end production before the film. I can't imagine how wonderful an experience this was for her because she got to play Eponine on the stage and then she got to come on the film production and pull back that performance in a lot of ways, but also play it up in a lot of ways because the camera was going to showcase everything she does. And when she sings on my own, or even when she sings, uh, uh, a little drop of rain, is that what it's called? Yes. Um, even when she sings that there's so much that you can see in her face in the way she smiles or, uh, turns her head or even just the way her voice breaks when she says certain words, sings certain words, it it amplifies the performance in a way that studio recordings really couldn't capture. So I think it's a choice that pays off even when you have voices like Russell Crowe's, you know, he's the one what I would call bad singer at least as showcased in the film but it doesn't bother me in the sense that it doesn't ruin the film for me i like to make fun of it a lot but uh and i do a pretty good impression that i can do another time (laughs) but it 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 doesn't ruin the film
1: no it doesn't and i think the important aspect of it really for me is that it's consistent Mm -hmm. frankly you know he's he is that monotone voice but he doesn't fluctuate at various points where you're like oh no russell you should be high here and you went low you should mm-hmm. be low here and you went high he's it's just that's how he plays the character so i don't know that it's even an i don't know that it's that he doesn't have range i think it very well may just be that that was a choice to play the character very stoic
0: at the end of the day he's just a oh. really good actor <laughs> oh. so i don't really care I see what you if did, he did there at the end of the day <laughs> um Any other story things, or can we really dive into the characters? No, I think the most,
1: the biggest aspect of this is in all of the wonderful characters. So let's let's go for it.
0: Okay, well, we've got Valjean, our our big number one character. Um, Let's just sort of talk through his journey. So he starts off, he's imprisoned. And as they sing, look down, these other men, some of them have lost their faith in God. Some of them are hoping that their wives are still there for them. These are people who... Uh, I mean, if they're anything like Valjean, they might have done something simple like steal some bread. And here he is 19 years later uh, serving a sentence for that that tiny crime that was out of self-preservation. And not even self-preservation. It was to save his sister's child. Um, So he's lost faith in others like a lot of those men have. Even when he's freed that day. He he's singing his song and he says, everyone else is guilty. I'll never forgive the world for what they did to me. And we see as he's seeking out, starting a new life for himself, free of prison, uh, he's trying to to. Well, everybody's still beating him down. Life is still beating him down, despite his freedom. It really doesn't mean anything because he's got that cloud hanging over his head as 24601 when he tries to steal from the church only to be caught and then forgiven by the bishop, who, by the way, played by Colm Wilkinson, who was the original Jean Valjean on Broadway. Love that. Yeah, me too. Um and that that scene is heartbreaking. And I guess the first like knife in the gut twisting around of this movie because oh well, he even says in his soliloquy, I feel my shame in me like a knife. Uh and he uses that opportunity to start a new life and become separate from this two four six oh one character. It, it it sets up the whole rest of the movie in such a beautiful way. In again, both terms of set design, but also establishing who this character is and what his motivations for the rest of the film are going to be.
1: Oh, it totally does. And you know, it's interesting. Before I continue with the, the Valjean stuff, when you were talking about that just now. I realized how much it relates to our current day American prison system in a lot of ways. I mean, this is a system that has failed these men, and Russell Crowe tries to, you know, justify it away by saying, "No, you only got four years for stealing the bread, or Javert, you only mm-hmm. got four years for stealing the bread, but the rest is because you ran." And it—it's this idea of the punishment's not fitting the crime,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: we're just incarcerating people and ruining their lives and creating these emotional emotionally bankrupt people who have no hope that just fall into this cycle where they're gonna do the same thing over and over again because that's all they know and they now believe that that is who they are and I feel like in a lot of ways that our system is like that in America today and so it's it's crazy to me that here we are I don't even know when the when the book was written I think in the 1700s maybe seventeen or 1800s
0: I, I think that, it was late 1800s
1: Yeah, so now here we are, two, three hundred years later, and it's kind of the same thing in a different part of the world. But with Valjean's arc, man, yeah, the bishop scene in particular, right off the bat, is just so, so powerful. And I think it's telling that he's caught stealing silver. I don't think that that's, I think that's meaningful. I think that's intentional. Um, Hugo uses lots of, of Christian references throughout this book and this story and it really sets Valjean up for his redemption that moment that is that the turning point for him where he's going to shed that identity that he now you know attaches to his failures and he's going to be somebody different and he even goes as far I think it's really amazing that this has an adoption story as part of it that's Mm -hmm. wild to me um, that you know he ends up taking on Cassette as his own child, going as he has to bargain for her, which is also hilarious mm-hmm. uh, in the moment that it happens. But he ends up pouring himself out with mercy and, and giving that back, what the bishop gave to him. And I love it. Um, one of my favorite parts of Valjean's story is... Toward the end, when he's he's singing Valjean's confession, and he is telling Marius the story of his life and who he is, and there's this moment in it where Marius is 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 doing callbacks in the song, and he says, "You're Jean Valjean," and the look on his face when that happens, it's like it. it I cry. I'm already <laughs> crying multiple Yeah, you know, I'm probably still <laughs> crying from the last thing, Right. but it starts up again. And it just, it's like the first time for me that he's been able to claim that identity again in so long because he shed it for, and I don't remember exactly how old he is at the end, but it had to be, you know, at least a 20, 30, 40 even year period where he couldn't be himself. He had to live under this guise of someone else he couldn't claim his own name and that's a big deal the power of a name and so right then he is recognized and accepted by Marios and Cosette as who he is and you just you can you can get you can feel that weight lifting off of him in Hugh Jackman's performance right there and it's it's wonderful
0: what gets me is that he only flees the law in the first place to well Aside after the church, uh, when he takes Cosette, he flees the law to fulfill what he sees as his duty as a Christian, basically to Fantine and to Cosette. And the role of a father suits him very well. He, that he sings that suddenly song that was actually written for the film uh, about how suddenly he understands what love is because he has this new daughter in his life. It, it's a really sweet moment, uh, and. One of the best things I think Hugh Jackman sings because it was written for him, Um, but he becomes overprotective at that point. And Cosette grows up living her life sort of secluded, kept safe because he fears for her safety. He understands her desire for a life eventually. And when he learns of her love for Marius, he makes another sacrifice by saying, "Okay, well, let's go find this boy. Let's protect him. And God on high, if I die, let me die, but let him live so that they can live a happy life together now. And basically, he sort of sees it as his penance for being 24601 and fleeing the law all these years. And that's part of the reason why I think he goes to Javert and says, listen, I'm done running. This is where you can find me. Uh, Just give me time to sort things out, give me times to do what I perceive as the right thing. And then you can have me. And so the whole movie, after that initial saving grace from the bishop, he's doing everything he can to make what he sees as the right decision to help other people. It's never selfish after that initial scene, which is what makes him so admir- admirable as a character.
1: Yeah, and he's he's the one that we can want to be like throughout at that point and it's it's it makes it so much more heartbreaking when things are not going his way or when he's you know about to be caught and he has to make all of these decisions again and um i i mean i love the moment when he lets javert go Mm
0: -hmm. the
1: again with the performances i just think you know russell crowe may have issues singing but he does not have issues exhibiting the emotion that is necessary in that moment Mm -hmm. because the the way that he shows us how it must feel to have been chasing this man the whole time and feeling like he he gets you in the headspace of knowing in his character's mind he's dead Mm -hmm. he's been captured they're going to kill him there is no question for him because he doesn't understand this mercy he doesn't know what that is he doesn't even know that exists and so when it's offered to you you you're just blasted you know you don't know how to respond to it and he doesn't know how to respond to it kind of like Valjean he's caught off guard by that with the bishop and he you know they respond differently Uh, and, and yet I think part of it is that Javert can only he tries to fight it in many ways but it's like he can't. And I think that that's ultimately what leads to his suicide. Is he the weight of his negative choices, he does not feel like he's worthy of redemption. Whereas Valjean accepts that and goes out and earns it or pays it forward, however you want to look at it. But Javert feels to me like he can't accept that that mercy that he was shown. It it just it it's it overpowers him.
0: Well, Throughout the whole film, he holds the law above all else, and he's unwilling to yield even an inch. He's not a bad guy, necessarily. He's not a villain. He's the antagonist. That's what you said earlier, and that's the perfect word to describe him. He's doing what he believes to be right. In his song, Stars, he says that he's a man of the law. Valjean is a man of the darkness. And his way, Javert's way, is the path of the righteous. But we see, as audience members, that both of them believe they're following god's path for themselves and when valjean saves him from the barricade and the revolutionists it rocks his world his dedication to the law uh this is the scene we were talking about earlier with gavroche's death and he sees the bodies first he's walking along the streets and they're awash with blood and earlier during the the uh quintet it wasn't quite a quintet but one day more he says they will wet themselves with blood um like yeah let's let's watch these boys. it's almost he's not celebrating it but it's like yeah we're going to squash this and he's seeing the consequences of his strict following of the law in the blood covering these streets and then the bodies laid out all of these young men mostly including this young boy and it's really the first time i think he's seeing the consequences of being such a strict lawman And he doesn't understand that there are shades of gray and that breaking the law in and of itself doesn't make you a sinful person. Javert, or Valjean, uh, uh, he breaks the law in breaking parole, but it's so he can completely escape his troubled past and forge a new positive life for himself. He once once his identity as uh the mayor is uncovered and he decides to help fontine he only do he only runs away to help fontine and kazet so on and so forth he makes those decisions over and over again so there there's gray area where it's not breaking the law isn't breaking god's law necessarily um and that's what i think tears him apart is that he's he can't come to terms with follow the law, as I've always known and as I've always done, or show mercy to a criminal who showed mercy to me, he he can't even those reconcile. out. Yeah, he can't, reco- can't reconcile you. that. Right. And so that's what leads to his suicide, is that he he's at a moral dilemma, and that's his solution in the moment.
1: And that's what's tragic right mm-hmm. because it's it's not a happy moment,
0: like you said he's not a
1: villain, so we don't we don't cheer, we don't stand up and root and say, "Yes, Javert is done it's It's like oh no, like it's it's heartbreaking because that's not what we want for him, and that's not what Valjean wanted for him, mm-hmm. either. You know, we want to see him redeemed as well uh, and unfortunately, we don't, but i mean every not everybody gets a wonderful end in this movie. It's realistic,
0: people die. What character you want to talk about next?
1: Um, Eponine. Eponine. <laughs> I, I'm in love with uh, Eponine, uh, both as a character and Samantha Barks in this performance. Man, she's always been a favorite, but I think that in this film, this version of her has elevated her to where she may be my favorite part of the whole darn story. I look forward to when she finally is going to show up on screen and. I think I probably cry the hardest um, at her arc. And uh, maybe that's because I relate. I don't know. But it's it's just very, she's got this very tragic arc uh, where she grows up raggedy and poverty stricken. You know, early on, she prevents her father from hurting Marius by stopping um, his burglary of Cassette. She lies about his whereabouts when her father tells her to look for him. And then uh, slipping Cassette and her father a note telling them to leave so that they can get away. She also takes it upon herself to find out where Cassette and Valjean live, and she decides to withhold his letters uh, when she's asked to deliver them to him, which is interesting because, obviously, she's got feelings for him, so she wants him for herself. And ultimately, you know, the biggest aspect of this is when she sneaks onto the barricades as a boy. That's her her big moment that's kind of the thing and she's in love with marius so deeply and and madly and i don't know that it's it's fair i mean they've grown up friends obviously uh and it's almost it's almost kind of off because marius falls in love with cassette in like the blink of an eye it's like one of those love at first sight type deals where here is this woman you know who and this this is so realistic to me even in today's day and age like the woman that's right there in front of you, your best friend, who would, would sacrifice and would actionably do anything for you and give all of this, give all of herself to you, and yet that's not what he wants. He's got this sparkle and twinkle in his eye about the thing out in the distance, and that being Cassette. And, but anyway, you know, Ebony ultimately takes a bullet for him, right? And to me, sacrifice is the ultimate depiction of love. And I don't necessarily mean where we all have to die for to prove that we've loved someone, but sacrifice is what love is to me. It's it's giving yourself, giving up something of yourself for another person's benefit. And, and Valjean exhibits this over and over throughout, as we've talked about as well. It's absolutely beautiful to me when Eponine does this, and it's very inspiring. And I think it's a it's a it's a really good character arc for her because it shows that no matter what she's been through, that she is capable of love and redemption as well. And she sings on my own, which is to me, one of the great songs about unrequited love that has ever been written. It is, it is, it is that song that when it comes on, you can't help but start singing along and you're in tears. (laughs) I don't think I've ever listened to it or tried to sing it and not had my eyes full of water. You just can't. It's, <laughs> it's, it's it, I, it, this doesn't always happen, but the best music can do that. It can, it can bring that out. And I said involuntary before, and that's what it is. It's, you're not, you're not thinking about it. It just creates the emotion in your, in your brain. Whatever it is, it's triggering something that does that. When she says, I love him, but only on my own, I, I think, I personally can relate to that in many ways at many times in my life where I've had that feeling, and I remember that in that moment when she sings that lyric and I lose it and so I think that for a lot of people, Eponine is a very relatable character, not just for me,
0: yeah, I've got to say the the one exception to not crying at that song is the international cast version because it is uh sung by a Chinese actress who does not speak English. <laughs> Uh, so she learned the song, and she sings it in English, but she learned it phonetically, so it sounds kind of weird. And it's actually, like, if, if you're in tears by the end of it, it's because you were laughing. So I encourage you oh. checking it out. But <laughs> uh, I may have to do that. It's pretty funny. Um, but, I mean, Eponine, I, I agree with everything you said. It, it's this torturous existence of being in love with someone who's ignorant to your feelings. And beyond that, Marius is actively pursuing another girl in front of her and even through her he says, "Hey, look at that girl over there. Can you find out information about her so I can go woo her?" basically I mean it's painful and the the most tragic line to me is during a heart full of love when Marius and Kazette are singing through the fence outside of the house and Eponine standing in the background and she interjects, he was never mine to lose." And that's actually echoed by Valjean during the Heartful of Love reprise, or every day, whatever you want to call it, towards the end, when he says, she was never mine to keep. Mm -hmm. And those are the the heart-wrenching lines for me as far as those characters go. Uh, But beyond being heartbroken over losing this guy that she's in love with, you You mentioned these as well. she does the right thing, yes, she withholds the note from cazette for a time, but she does forfeit it to Marius and says, "I'm sorry, I held this back, but this is for you and that reconnects the two of them and when her father shows up to steal or whatever else he's going to do to Valjean, she stops him she She does the right thing in protecting others, even though she has reason to perhaps be vengeful against Cosette and Valjean because well, Gazette was the favorite, ch- or Eponine was the favorite child as a kid. And now she's sort of the one cast aside, like Cazette was when she was living with her parents. Um, but when she understands that she can't force Marius to love her, she sacrifices herself. And it, It's so, I I can't imagine being in that that place where you see this person who you love so much that doesn't reciprocate and your only response is to go and do something drastic to, uh, uh, she doesn't commit suicide, but it's a sacrificial act to go and sort of put herself on the front lines. And, well, a lot of people do that
1: to mm-hmm. get Marius and Cassette together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of sacrifice to get that relationship mm-hmm. where it is.
0: And she ultimately just wants him to be happy, I think. And so she, yeah. she does what she can to, to help Marius out and to push him in that direction towards Cassette. So, yeah, Ebony's a fantastic character, and I, I really like Samantha Barks in the role. If you love something,
1: let it go. I mean, that's that's essentially what she's doing. Mm-hmm. She's she's accepting that it's not ever going to be her, and she would rather see him happy with someone else than be angry about it. Uh, yeah, it's it's very moving and, and inspi- like I said, inspiring because it's it's hard to feel that way. Frankly, that's not a natural reaction that we have when we are in Eponine's shoes. And yeah, Samantha Barks, man, I I'm just so glad. That she got cast. Uh, you mentioned earlier how she's a theater actress who had played Eponine on stage already. Mm-hmm. You know, she is the only one, to my knowledge, that is not a movie star other than Colm. But he's a much more uh, minuscule character as far as screen time and stuff. And it's <laughs> there's a little piece of trivia. Apparently, she meows. Her notes on set—that's how she warms up—is by meowing in various different keys and pitches. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was fun.
0: (laughs) I don't know. That's something different. (laughs) What else is
1: really interesting to me is the list of actresses that were considered and auditioned for this role. Let me read this off: Hayden Panettiere, Scarlett Johansson, Leah Michelle, Emily Browning, Lucy Hale, and Evan Rachel Wood. It was also rumored that Taylor Swift Swift had
0: been offered the role.
1: Now, can you imagine any of those people? Cuz there's some big names in there.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't. <laughs> Not now, I, right? No. Possibly because I don't picture any of them as singers primarily. I mean aside from Taylor Swift, but I definitely don't see her as a stage singer.
1: Mhm. Yeah, me either. And it's just it was kind of mind-blowing to me when I saw that list of And the difference that these actresses would have brought to that role, both from a physicality standpoint and a a musical background standpoint, it's just, I I don't know. She is my favorite casting in the entire film, and I just, I I adore her so much.
0: Um, Then we've got Marius, who also makes sacrifices. We see in the first scene where we're introduced to him uh, that he is sort of he he has distanced himself from his family who comes from wealth apparently uh to fight for a cause that he thinks is just and is right he sings i won't take a frank i won't earn i won't no he says i won't take a franc i have not earned in, re- in relation to this this relationship he has with the fa- or grandfather who says he brings shame to the family and he has to make this decision between Himself making himself happy by pursuing Cosette or fighting with his friends for a good cause. And he ultimately chooses the cause because he thinks Cosette's gone forever. But at the end of uh Eponine's sacrifice, at the end of her life, she hands over the note. And instead of focusing on the note, he he says what have you done? Which is a brilliantly written line because she has just said, sorry, I, I didn't give this to you earlier, but this is for you. He says, what have you done? And you think, oh, come on, don't focus on that. But he means, why have you gone and done this to yourself for me? And he sits there and he holds her and sinks to her as she dies in his arms. And he continues to choose the cause. He sends all a a note to Gazette at that point saying, you know, I I hope that we see each other again, but if not, at least I would have died doing something important, something I believe in. And uh, I I, I really admire that about him, is that he does stay with his friends. He does stand by his brothers to fight for their right to be free. (laughs) That's the lyric, right? Uh, So... Uh, I, I I admire Marius and his sacrifices as well. There's lots of those those sacrifices throughout.
1: Yeah, I I do as well. And the, you know he's he loses everybody mm-hmm. except Cassette. Yeah, and and that's the thing is it it be misunderstood from the outside as this movie is a romance about Cosette and Marius. Like that's one of the big hooks. That's the things, like I said about earlier, how, Oh, it's the movie about the French revolution. Oh, this is a movie about a romance between these two people, but it's so much more layered than that in his character. Uh, and, you know, and he, he follows it through all the way to the end. And I think what you see is that he becomes worthy of all of the sacrifice that is made in his or for him you know he becomes the man he needs to be to carry forth because he and cassette are the only ones that live in this story Mm -hmm. right like everybody else dies i think if i if i remember right i'm trying to think of anybody else that might live and there's not anybody no so he's the one that has to carry on and live and live differently live changed and and live for all of these people that no longer are with us and so i think he becomes that character over the course of the story and so you know it's he's somebody we absolutely root for
0: and even in his loss at uh having being becoming the only living person uh, among his friends and singing empty chairs and empty tables. He, he's he gone through some oh, trauma. Uh, th- th- that scene is heartbreaking. Uh, th- by the way, this scene introduced me to Eddie Redmayne and uh, oh, he man. is so fantastic. But uh, even though he's gone through that trauma and even though he's had this heartbreak, he is still thankful to Jean Valjean for saving his life. Uh, he, and he, he he has the chance to express that gratitude at the end Um uh, after his wedding, unfortunately, because he wasn't aware of exactly how Valjean saved his life. But he does everything he can to communicate to him, hey, if you want to stick around, you're going to be looked after, you're going to be loved as a father to us and a father to everyone because you are this great man. And that's before he finds out that he also saved his life. And that's when he seeks him out again so he can have that ultimate uh display of gratitude and say your father is a saint, Gazette, because if it weren't for him, I would have died at the barricade with all of my friends, and yet here I am married to you now because of your papa. And so uh, it's great that he's able to express that gratitude. Definitely.
1: Yeah, I I like him as well. This is probably my favorite role of his, honestly. I've,
0: I've enjoyed certain performances
1: of his, some much more than others, but this one, I think he nails it. Very much so. Um, somebody else that really stands out to me, by the way, is the casting of the. I never can pronounce this T- guy's Tenardier. name. Tenardier. Tenardier. Thank you. And and his wife. This. So the they are the f- humor. Mm-hmm. They're the levity in the in the in the story that is much needed with how heavy it is. And I think that the casting here of Sasha Baron Cohen and Hel- Helena Bonham Carter is masterful yeah <laughs> uh, they are perfect in this role they're perfect they are, they are absolutely perfect and he he brings he they bring this needed eccentricity to to the roles they're these vagrants they're just terrible people <laughs> and the thing is they're like a centerpiece they're a connecting point for all of the characters because they have this little intimate connection to each and every one in various ways, and they kind of follow the story through all the way to the end with us, and it's almost like we get a, a unique perspective of everything that's going on from them over the course of time, and I, I just think that is a really interesting, neat way to to do that story-wise, to to use them as characters, but they also they They serve as grounding again, because they're characters that I think we can relate to, and that we've all kind of experienced people that are maybe not quite like this, but somewhat like this, people that are out for themselves, people that are worried about their own hide and they're out to make a buck and they do so and they in this performances they're just they're the ones that you wanna hate, they're the villains, if you will, of the story, and i think I think they're phenomenal.
0: Yeah it's funny that the the comedic relief comes from the characters that really are the the worst of all of us. They're they're completely self-absorbed. Uh but the the scene that stands out to me and the the scene that made me laugh the most as far as they go tonight was watching them crashing the party and then being carried out. I can only imagine how much fun that scene was to film with Helen and Bonham Carter and Sacha Baron Cohen in these ridiculous costumes, powdered faces, wigs, being carried off on their backs, having to sing, because, again, this is live, and having cameras basically between their legs looking down at them as they're being carried down the staircase and having to stay in character and sing this this silly song which is a reprise of Masters of the House uh it, they're fun characters even though they're they're just awful people and I'm okay with that.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely. I and and I will admit that there are de- there are definitely times because of the costuming and the makeup that I just am waiting for Madame Thenardier to like break out a wand and go (laughs) nuts on everybody
0: yeah yeah you definitely get that vibe a little bit from her Uh, (laughs) um just a couple characters to mention because that i like amanda seaford in the role she she doesn't have as much like growth as everybody else does um but she as a child is instantly open to having a father in valjean when we first meet her she's singing the song called castle in a cloud talking about a life that's basically completely opposite of what she has right now. And it's really sad uh, hearing this little girl talking about, oh, I I, I imagine this place where uh, there's rainbows and everybody's happy and everybody says, I love you. And it's things that she doesn't have now. But then she's thrust into the life of Jean Valjean and suddenly she has a father. And um, she she thirsts for the truth of Valjean's past, but she's also grateful to him for the life that he's provided to her. And she she, she is hopeful for that that real life outside of her isolation. And that does lead her to Marius. And, uh, I, but like I said, she doesn't really have much growth outside of that. She doesn't have uh, a fault to overcome like a lot of the other characters do. Uh, but I, I like the character, so I just wanted to mention her.
1: Yeah, I think she does a very good job in the role. I I don't, for some reason, I I guess I have like this mental block and I I think it's personal because again, I think it's partially because people who talk to me about this movie want to make it about Marius and Cosette and I'm so determined for it not to be <laughs> that <laughs> I kind of intentionally lessen her in my world. But I, I think that she did a very good job and the couple of standout moments when she does have to, you know, belt a song. She really does a good job.
0: Mm-hmm. I I really like her voice. It, it's, uh, it's kind of sprightly is kind of a way I describe it. Uh, whereas it's got this innocent high soprano quality to it that's uh, not overdeveloped, and I kind of like the innocence of that. Um, you've got Angel Ross, uh, played by Aaron Tveit, who is the leader of the the ABCs. Um, And he's leading a bunch of young men into a battle that will lead to them sacrificing their lives. Like, they're hoping for this ultimate uprising at uh, Monsieur Lamarck's funeral, and it doesn't go their way, and they're the last ones standing. And to the end, he is holding up the flag saying, Vive la France. And I'm still going to stand for what I believe in. I'm not going to run away from this. It's actually hanging by the flag. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, but in uh, Do You Hear the People Sing, there's a line that says, the blood of the martyrs will water the meadows of France. And this goes into relevance just a tiny bit. But that's the whole point. Is it's, it's not necessarily about the French Revolution. It's about these characters doing something worthwhile with their lives that's going to affect generations to come recent example, you have Martin Luther King, you have Rosa Parks, who did things in their lifetimes that maybe didn't have the immediate effect they sought. But long term, they they more or less reached their goal. We have problems, but you know what I mean. It, uh, France reached independence eventually, not too long, actually, after this. I think this was 1832 at the end of the film. I was looking up earlier. I think France became independent in 1848 or something like that. So it wasn't long after. And th- that's the whole point, is this this character, Angel Ross, leading these people, leading his friends, staying dedicated to a cause that they thought was important and that they believed in and... The blood of the martyrs water the meadows of France. The Meadows have flowers. This is going to be a blossoming. This is going to be a good thing for their country, and that is what he's fighting for, and that's what all of them are fighting for, and that's why it's important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great explanation of his character. He's also the heartthrob in a lot of ways. <laughs> I, I know. I know. Sorry to make you spit out your drink. Uh, <laughs> I I know quite a few women uh, over, the, especially back in high school when I was seeing this, who. Resonate with his character more so than Marius. They see Marius as more of kind of a sweet, charming little boy type character, and and this he is the the studly one who's really the leader and strong, the most strong of them all. So um, I I like him a lot, and I like
0: the acting job by uh, by uh who would you say Aaron Aaron Tivite Aaron Tvite, a lot, or it might be Tivate I'm not sure, but uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, I think the last character we haven't mentioned is Fontaine. So, what do you have to say about Fontaine and Anne Hathaway in the role?
1: I don't know. I this is what everybody talked about because of her the what her role is. I think that she does a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time with this because this is one of the sections of the story that I hate the most and probably because of what's happening. It's just so awful to me Mm -hmm. and watching her heart, heartache and her death and, and everything revolving around and her, of course, um, singing, I dreamed a dream, which is beautiful and terrible all at once. So I, I think she crushes it and I really respect the acting job. That it took to embody this character and what was happening to her and do it in a way that was um, respectful and honest all at the same time. She just she's amazing, frankly, in my opinion. I I think she's wonderful.
0: I I agree. Um, Fontaine's another person who life is dealt a crap and her husband left her. The child uh, has to live alone separately and she has to fend for herself and is set out by her peers to be fired, and then she's forced to turn to prostitution after cutting off all her hair for money as well. Uh, to And all of this just to earn anything that even resembles a living. And it's just heartbreaking. Basically, Valjean and Fantine are kindred spirits and that they both had crappy hands dealt to them. And both of them had people come to them or... Yeah, people come to them and uh, offer them redemption. Now, unfortunately, Fantine's redemption is through her daughter, so she still dies. But she uh, dies peacefully knowing that her daughter is going to be taken care of. And that's why, at the end of the film, when Valjean is ready for his own death, Fantine is the one who welcomes him to heaven, to the afterlife, and says, y- you're going to... You raised my daughter as your own. And for that, among other things, you're going to go up with God. And so I like that there's this sort of parallel between those two characters where they were both offered redemptions, but it was different kinds of redemptions. Um, so, yeah, that, that that's my piece about that. And Anne Hathaway is amazing. I That I Dreamed a Dream sequence is it's awful because of how heartbreaking it is and what she's going through and what she's gone through, but man, powerfully acted, powerfully sung by Anne Hathaway. So yeah. Speaking of singing, let's talk about music. So uh, a lot of my notes here are about song parallels um, between characters and motifs and stuff like that. So I want to hear what you have to say first before I start tying knots and you're welcome to do that a little bit as well.
1: Well, I, you know, I've hit on most of the songs stuff,
0: uh, (laughs) the,
1: the songs are, they're so intricately a part of the story because they're how we tell the story that we, it's hard not to talk about them up until this point, Mm -hmm. you know, and I did mention that I love that this tells the story so perfectly Mm -hmm. through the, through the list of songs that you can listen to it and know everything that's happening. You don't need interjected dialogue you're not missing anything so if anybody is listening to this episode and hasn't actually seen this movie you know you can go listen to the soundtrack if you prefer and you'll get the story Uh, and I think that that's it's pretty amazing it's also just so good from start to finish I love that and I think what you're talking about is important there are lots of that there is a lot of that and it is a common theme in musicals in general Lots of reprises and such, where something that has been touched on or talked about in the beginning comes back uh, later on and is re re readdressed. But I, I do want to hear what you have to say about them. I I love all of the music, all of the songs. Gosh, I don't know. I they just seem to be special, and I I don't know why that is. But there are many many musicals out there where I can point to one, two, or three maybe four songs that are like, oh, these are the standouts that I think of when I think of this particular uh, story. And in Les Mis, it's hard for me to do that because there are so many that I would try to point to.
0: For me, if I'm listening to the musical through, um, I could do without, personally, like Masters of the House, or at least the initial one. I like oh, the reprise. No. And and I don't love Castle on a Cloud either. But when I'm watching, uh, I definitely appreciate those songs more. Uh, but partially maybe the reason I don't care for those as much is because they don't have a connection to another character later on in the film. So like at the very beginning, as Valjean is departing the prison, we hear snippets of On My Own or it's what's going to become On My Own later, sung by Eponine. We have the Empty Chairs song. The first time we hear that is as the bishop is singing to Valjean after gifting the silver. Um, and He's saying, you need to take the silver to become an honest man. That's to the tune of Empty Chairs at Empty Tables. And I don't know necessarily what the meaning of that is, but then we hear it again, uh, aside from the actual song, at the church when uh, Valjean is slipping away with Cazette uh the the choir is singing a version of empty chairs inside to chant or to latin or whatever the language might be and uh so there's there's that then you've got the parallels of Valjean's soliloquy and then Javert's uh death or suicide or that that chunk at the end so you've got parallels between those two characters you've got i dreamed a dream uh itself and then you've got Valjean picking up Cazette from the Ten- Tenardier. so it's like a fulfillment of a dream that Fantine had that Valjean is pursuing and following through so i really like that as well and i, I mean i've got a few more but uh you have let's see uh, who Am I in One Day More? So uh, a song about figuring out who Valjean is and what life he wants to dedicate himself to One Day More, where he's basically having to make that same decision. But then the first time Marius sees cazette it's to that same tune. Uh, so there, there's lots of these parallels. And I, I like when musicals do this. Like Phantom of the Opera was one, my favorite for a long time. And to my memory, there aren't a lot of tunes that reprise themselves in the form of other characters that are connected to that original character. So it, it, this is really unique. Hamilton actually does this as well um, because Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius, but <laughs> uh, I, I I love when yes, there are re- these recurring motifs that represent different things to different characters, but they're all connected.
1: Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's a very cool observation. And I think anyone, I think people pick up on, or I think people, Note it, notice it without noticing it. Mm -hmm. I'm not phrasing that right, but you know that if you sing it to yourself or when you're hearing it, and you're hearing him saying "Who am I?" like you know that he's that's also the same tune exactly of "One Day More," right? Mm -hmm. But you don't really connect those dots, and I think it's awesome that you're you're pointing that out. Uh, I did notice the sound design though in this one uh, this time around there are some really good pieces of sound editing and mixing in this and there's a couple there's a moment specifically the end when javert kills himself you can hear the 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 sound and and i think this is awesome because so much of the sound is constantly singing Mm -hmm. that in those brief moments where you don't get it to have wonderful sound design is fitting and you hear the rush of the water in the dam and then when you you see him fall the crunch of his body yeah is oh like it is <laughs> I, I think it's yeah again it's it's that visceral response that it generates in you when you hear that and so i really like the sound design in this as well
0: i agree now uh let's go ahead and go on to our final section Uh, We're at an hour 15, a little bit shorter than that, actually, just because of a couple things that happened during recording. Uh, But what's one of your first major takeaways from this musical?
1: Well, the one thing that I want to mention that I haven't already is, for me personally, and you mentioned this earlier, uh, that your faith, Christian faith, is um, really tied to your reaction to this story, and mine is as well. And that is nowhere more evident than in the ending. I think that this is one of the most perfect endings to a story in general that I've ever seen. When the movie ends, as you mentioned, Valjean is entered into heaven and ushered in. He's taken by those that that he loved. Fontine is there. So many of our characters are there. Pretty much everybody, other than Javert, actually. And the thing is that this scene is not depressing? Not in the least. It's not sad. It is celebratory, and it is glorious. It is full of joy. The bishop is there, who showed him mercy. Fontine who he showed compassion. And the lyrics that take place during this scene, take my hand and lead me to salvation. Take my love, for love is everlasting. And remember the truth that once was spoken to love another person is to see the face of God, which is one of my favorite quotes of all time. I've never seen something that is more emotionally satisfying as a depiction of heaven and this idea of what it might be like for us to get to heaven and to reunite with all of our loved ones that we have been living without um, in the remaining years that we have on earth. And so for me, it is it is extremely, extremely powerful and moving. and. Without being overtly in-your-face preachy Christian, it's the best depiction of of what it's like, biblically, I think, for a Christian to go to heaven that we could ever have seen.
0: Yeah, to me, this movie is what proper Christianity means. It's about loving the unloved. It's about forgiving those who crave or need or maybe even don't deserve it, forgiving those who need forgiveness um and i I have that same quote written down here to love another person is to see the face of God um uh, God in the Bible Christ in the bible says uh uh to the least of these the people the the least of these people the, that you show compassion to you show the same to me, and so that's what that is saying to me um and the that that final scene where he is gone he's He's dead, his uh daughter, Cozette, is weeping over him uh because he was such a loving father to her, and then seeing those people who had such a profound effect on his life that either affected him or he affected uh and taking the fact that the bishop was there who he affected or who affected him, and then Fantine was there who he affected and then he goes into that finale where all the people who presumably died at the barricades. Maybe that meant that in some way he had an effect on these people's life too. He was a mayor of a town for however many years for all that. And maybe that's reading too much into it, but to me it's, it's showing that the, the influence, the impact one person can have on countless other people. And so proper Christianity, that's what that means to me is loving each other, uh, I will know you. People will know you by how you love. Uh, so there's that. And then something else that we've already talked about, so I won't go too in depth. There's good and there's the law. And they aren't, mutual yeah. exu- they aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, yeah. That's a lesson that Javert, unfortunately, never learns, which is why he kills himself. He can't resolve those two things. Um, the right thing morally can be the wrong thing in the eyes of the laws, in which case I think this... Movie is telling us it's important to honor morality and to do what you perceive as right, but sometimes they do line up, and in that case, you still stick with morality. <laughs> uh In the end, do do what fits your moral compass or the 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 moral thing that you subscribe to.
1: Well, yeah, mostly right. You I know mean, what? yeah, I, but in the especially in the regards to when it comes to humanity, yeah. Right when it comes to being humane, because what we see here is the crimes that are are because he was humane, he is being punished. Mm -hmm. Maybe in that specific type of situation where we really need to, the law needs to be secondary to the morality of of erring on the side of taking care of people, loving people, than being lawful.
0: Right, right. I I certainly don't mean that if if you think in your viewpoint that it is moral to kill a person, then you should stick with that. I I, I definitely mean along those lines that you just clarified. So thank you for that. Uh, What any other takeaways, major takeaways?
1: Uh, No, just the thing I said earlier, you know, about how I feel like it's such a reflection of how American society is today. What we see at the beginning and, and the way that the prism system is playing out and, france and and how we we handle ours today and so you know at the risk of like making a very weird tie-in plug <laughs> i watched a documentary that came out last year it was on netflix it's actually directed by ava duvernay mm-hmm. uh, the the awesome director of the movie selma and the documentary is called 13th and it's a fascinating look at the incarceration statistics of african americans and the history of that in america and there is a distinct parallel there to some of the ways we see it played out as far as Javon. See, I just merged their names. Wow. That's what happens when you talk about this movie too long. Uh, with, with Valjean and Javert and how their their system is in place in that country. So interesting to me how that works. But yeah, it's uh, it, this movie is just – everything about it is so powerful and so – Incredibly, I one one thing I will say, I guess my last comment is this: Sometimes it's easy for us, Chad, to build up walls and not feel or not emote um, or pretend things are not happening in our lives or go about you know we try to we try to silo pieces of of things that are that are you know not happy or frustrating to us. This movie, whether you want it to or not if you connect to it and you you allow yourself to, to be a part of the experience, it breaks those down and it brings that emotion out of you. You can't ignore it and you can't fight against it. And I think that that's important. And so sometimes we need to have that cathartic experience and I think this is one of those films that can really provide that for us.
0: Yeah, I'm, my closing thoughts are that there's another quote that I wanted to mention. It is time for us all to decide who we are. I think something else that this movie is telling us is that sometimes we have to make decisions that show who we are as people. Jean Valjean, is is he 24601? Is he Monsieur Le Maire? What does it mean to say that he is that person? Nothing, ultimately. He is Jean Valjean, no matter what. But what does it mean to be Jean Valjean? And that is shown by his actions throughout the movie. And as I mentioned, our actions may not have consequences that aren't immediately known to us, but they can affect change in the world. And the, the young men of the, the barricade, that, that's that perfect display of that. But even Valjean himself, he doesn't know the effect he's going to have on others. He just knows that he had a crap life, He made some bad decisions and then he was given a second chance and he's using that second chance to make the world a better place. And I think that is ultimately something very valuable from this movie is to to go out there and make the world a better place. Be. Be the love you want to see in the world. I know that's a a, a sort of quote from something else, but
1: it's a great quote. Yeah. It is never, ever too late to show mercy forgive and to choose love we exactly over and over in this film
0: cool and that's the end of the official 73rd episode of cinescope thank you aaron for talking about this movie with me very late for me it, well it's still late for you but uh it's one twenty-four not, not, in the morning for me now not comparatively <laughs> yeah, it's my, not, yeah my cat has even gone to sleep uh yeah.
1: oh speaking of cats one quick thing tom hooper the director of this film is Next project, I don't know. It's been announced for a while, mm-hmm. but he is remaking or he is creating a film version of Cats. Yeah, it so will be interesting. There's not a lot known about it, and it's going to be va- – it's a wildly different type of story than mm-hmm. Les Mis. So, uh, you know, it's based on a book of kind of poems from T.S.
0: Eliot. So who
1: knows how that's going to turn out, but I'm super excited, and I get to go see Cats next year. It's part of my next uh, season ticket package.
0: Nice. Uh, I I like Tom Hooper. I liked The King's Speech, but I don't think, in my mind—I mean, I'm not going to nix the possibility, but in my mind, I don't know if there's going to be a better Tom Hooper film than Les Miserables, to be honest. I
1: agree. I I I think
0: this is—I mean, we've had discussions on the Feelin' Film Facebook page about the word masterpiece, and I'm not prepared to levy that at this film, but it is hugely affecting— And I can't picture myself enjoying another film musical more than I do this one, or at least being affected more by a film musical than I am by this one. So well done, Tom Hooper. Uh, Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Uh, As mentioned earlier, if you would like to go to iTunes or to the Apple Podcasts app on your iOS device, you can do that. Uh, Rate and review it. That would be awesome. And subscribe if you feel so inclined. You can email feedback and ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that email address to contact me regarding co hosting if you have a movie you'd love that you'd like to talk about. I've started putting together a list of people who have contacted me, and I will be contacting you back soon. Now, Aaron, where can people find you online?
1: Well, you can always find me individually on Twitter at Aaron L White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. You can also find me tweeting from the Feelin' Film Twitter account and uh active in my Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group, which Chad is a member of and and a very uh, big poster. So come come there, talk to him as well as a bunch of other movie lovers. Who generally keep the conversation pretty positive as well, and uh, that's one of the things we love about the discussion group. Is it's just a lot of people talking about movies and, in general, being really friendly to each other, and you don't see that a lot online anymore. So, uh, if you'd like to check out my show, which Chad and I both mentioned, is is kind of similar, kind of spiritually connected in a way to the message that CineScope has. You can find that all over podcast directories. Feelin Film. That's F E E L I N apostrophe. F-I-L-M, and you can always find everything, written reviews for movies I review each and every week that are coming out new in theaters on feelandfilm.com.
0: And that's another highly recommend thumbs up from me, so go check out those guys over there. Uh, The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter, that is D A D A D A. also facebook.com slash chad.hopkins, and you have my other Podcast in American Workplace, where podcasts can be found, and at workplacepodcast.com. And that is where we talk about NBC's The Office. We're approaching the end of season three. And don't forget, there's also Cinescope today now that you can go and start listening to us talk about new movies. And uh, looking forward to expanding that catalog. Show notes and contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com, and that is all for this week. Thank you once again, Aaron. It's always great to have you on the show to talk about movies.
1: Well, thank you. I love coming, and I am so grateful that you would ask me to come back.
0: And you will be back, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to Episode 73. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with Episode 74. Have fun and celebrate movies.
1: Glad you pointed out during that that section that this musical is based on or I'm sorry, this movie, this film is based on the musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber and not directly based on the book by Victor Hugo, because there are there are differences. And I've read the book and the musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber is also based off of the book. Hold on. Hold on.
0: It's not Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh,
1: what? I'm getting cats confused. Who is it? <laughs> it's, Who uh,
0: the, the French guys. It was originally written in ah, French. Uh, Claude-Michel Schoenberg and Alain Bublue.
1: Oh, that's the people that you were talking about. Yeah. All right. Let yeah. me back up. Let me say that all again.
0: <laughs> I just didn't I want know. The, the angry uh, emails good, coming because in. Because <laughs> I don't know. I was going to
1: say something about cats, and so I got yeah. confused.
0: There would have been a lot more electric guitar if it was Andrew Weber. That's a very good point. <laughs> okay.